Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Wednesday with That Anthro Podcast and your host, Gabriella Campbell. Today's guest is Megan Rose Kumorik, and she's a wonderful, wonderful scholar. She's an Egyptologist, and she had a lot of really interesting things to say in this episode. Definitely one of those like chit-chatty, vibey episodes where we kind of just talk about everything under the sun, which if you're a regular listener, you know those are my favorite episodes, so I know you all will enjoy it. Um, Just a little PSA. Um, our pride collection um it's basically like it's our logo but with like a rainbow background is available on redbubble for ordering um i'm working on a website it's gonna happen it's just slow so no one bug me it's been a rough month um <laughs> but i'm work i'm working on a website i just want it to be the right website because i want it to be a website that can have my transcriptions and i found this one website thing called pod page that I really like but it has a character limit on the transcriptions which is like pointless because it's like I can't have the transcriptions there so then I have to figure out somewhere else to have my transcriptions anyway I'm working on it um sorry to go into that little um side note but yeah um the red bubble will be linked below if anyone wants to check out the pride collection and without further ado let's get into the episode with Megan Wait, what's the story behind that? They just invented like, the last name? Yeah, so like my family came from Poland. Um, my mom's side of the family came from Poland during, was it the First or Second World War? It was one of the two. Um, mm-hmm. So they came to the States and they thought, oh, Kumorowski, no one can pronounce that. We'll make it sound American. And they changed it to Komorik. And I really wish I could ask my ancestors what logic there was with that. Yeah. <laughs> Comoric is still very difficult and very strange it's not American at all yeah but um, I ended up just like keeping my last name when I got married because my husband's last name is King and I eventually want to be Dr. Comoric and I thought Dr. King would be a I'd be missed in all the Google searches especially because I shared the same birthday as Dr. King so it just wouldn't work out oh my gosh and also I feel like with like as an Egyptologist like Dr. King and like I don't know I feel like (laughs) It's just like an interesting, but I mean, that is a cool last name. That's so funny that they made, they just made it up. Honestly, just whatever felt good. Yeah. Well, welcome to the podcast officially, Megan. I'm so thankful that you're here. We have a lot of really fun things to talk about because guess what? You are a multifaceted, accomplished woman. And I'm really excited to talk about all of the little things before we hopped on um, to record. We were talking about her beautiful wedding this beautiful wedding dress that she had um kind of like added the sleeves on herself and I thought I see you post it was like inspired by the show rain right it was yeah so in the show rain if no one has seen it 
uh, there is a coronation gown. It's red and gold and gorgeous. And I really liked the silhouette of it. So I, when I went wedding dress shopping, I really wanted that regal look because I was getting married in a 17th century French chateau in England. So I really wanted to match that. Yeah. And I ended up finding a dress that I knew that I could build upon and really make my own. So somehow in Arizona, because yes, I'm from Arizona, <laughs> I found a Russian seamstress to then design my dress. And she made it look like the rain coronation dress meets uh, Anastasia. And that was mm-hmm. kind of the, the vibe it, it yeah, was successful, it I think. yeah well that's really cool and uh, and congratulations of course um Thank but you. you know in addition to being a newly married married woman you are um also have your master's in Egyptology from the University of Liverpool and um I'm really excited to kind of hear like what you're currently up to and what kind of what's the goal from here we'll get into your background but like if you could chart out the next phase you know what is your like dream and the goal that you're striving towards so currently I've just partnered with some of my colleagues that I've met from Liverpool as well just abroad to create a organization called Menem Archaeology Menem is Middle Eastern North African and Mediterranean Archaeology Our goal currently is to produce peer-reviewed articles and posts for the general public for free. Uh, It hasn't been necessarily the easiest thing because funding and everything, but the dream is to continue with that, get funding for that, build upon it so that eventually when I have enough money to do a PhD, I can go in with that kind of academic um, background, I guess, something that I created under my belt, go yeah. into a PhD, and then I can further my graffiti research because I specialize in ancient graffiti. Yeah. Well, we can't just touch on that. I feel like we have to, we have to dive into that. So let me just first start by, you did your um, BA at Northern Arizona University and not really focusing on Egyptology, but I should also say that sometimes that's just, just like a function of what professors are at a school. So was there always an interest in Egyptology or did you kind of like discover it later? So I always loved ancient Egypt. My dad's father used to travel to the Middle East all the time and bring back things. So I fell in love with the classical world, primarily Egypt. But when it came to my undergrad, I had already been toying around with maybe not doing archeology. span I almost went on Broadway. I almost did opera. I was a competitive dancer. I also then was looking into metaphysics and astrophysics because I, my family are aerospace technicians and stuff like that. So I was like picking from a lot of, lot of baskets and I still loved ancient history. So I decided, okay, I love archeology. span I've always thought digging up old things was cool. How, how can I make this a career? So I decided to first start with my father's ancestry, which is Central and South American. And that is why I went to my undergrad to study Central South American archeology. span I worked in Peru, I worked in Belize. And honestly, I fell in love with it, but that passion for Egypt was always there. So all of my professors knew that all the experience I was getting in Central and South America was going to have to transfer one day to Egypt. And it actually did successfully, like it worked out. So I hope I meet her like, maybe at a conference or something, because she did seem like a really interesting person. She is amazing. Uh, Working with her was so much fun, and it kind of opened up the doorways for other people that I got to meet. So I got to work with Dr. Jaime Awe, which is one of the leading Belizean archaeologists out there. He's on every documentary I watch now. So I think Disney Plus has a monopoly on this man, and he is so oblivious to how cool being on a documentary is, because he'll just be in his sandals talking about history. 
And I remember excavating with him and there was people coming up asking for his autograph. And he was just like, yeah, no problem. Anyways, this ceramic vessel. And I was like, how are you so nonchalant about this? I would be pissing my pants with excitement if someone recognized me like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Honestly, like, isn't that the goal? I would love to be like that, like the expert. I actually noticed that you do some stuff like that on past preservers. Is it been really cool? And like, does it make you feel the same way you feel about Dr. Hallway? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I think anytime someone can recognize me or ask my expert opinion, and I do air quote that because I never will feel like an expert. I always have imposter syndrome, but when people do ask my opinion on something and can they quote me I'm like oh yeah if if you really want to if you think I'm that important thank you um it has been really cool I even had um, an organization a nonprofit called Safe Cultural Heritage Group reach out to me and they were just like we want you to host a show we want you to be part of our creative uh media team and I'm like oh okay yeah if if you again if you think I'm qualified enough to do this and then everyone always says I think you might agree like the the CV is very varied and I have a lot of various experience so I think people come to my CV thinking oh my gosh she's amazing and I just look at it going I could add another page I could keep going what else could I do I feel the same way but I honestly I feel like being a multifaceted person in addition to scholar because I'm talking about like for example you speak multiple languages we're talking about things like outside of just academia it gives you a more unique perspective on the world to bring to everything. Like when you work in like humanitarian organizations, you come into your archaeology work with a different view. And I think it's really important. I think honestly, like too often academics can be narrow minded, but I should also say that with the caveat of like, sometimes that's like the opportunities you're given. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that anyone's doing something wrong by not taking, you know, by not doing anything and everything, not everyone has the opportunities, but also things outside really contribute to the quality of work you then do within your research, I feel like. Oh, 100%. The more perspectives that you can bring into your research, the more unbiased you can be because then you can say like oh I've had this worldview growing up but then it changed because I was exposed to this and then I was exposed to that and I have experience now and all these different things it really brings your research to life I guess because I mean we're studying human lives we're studying the humanities and if you don't live a human life then what you're studying is just very one-dimensional it doesn't actually feel real and I remember looking for a master's program and I met a professor I won't say the university won't say the name but I met a professor and I had expressed my love for someone I worked with saying that oh they like they love ancient Egypt but they also work in in the Maya world and they love to do both and they literally said if you can't pick one you're just like a worthless researcher because you don't have focus and I think now coming to 2022 we can all see the value of being multifaceted and we can see how if you study various cultures, now we call it the cross-cultural evaluation, and it is important to research. So I remember looking at that professor, and I did not apply to that school because I I wanted to do more than just one thing. I got told the exact same thing not nine months ago, and I was like, what? I don't understand. How does that make me less desirable as a candidate? And it doesn't. It's just like the particular place, you know what I mean? The not being able to appreciate it. But it's a it's a trip when you get told that your multi interests are unfocused. You're like, 
no, but I'm just really focused on those two or three things, you know, like there is focus. It's just not on one specific like population and time period. And like, I'm sorry that I haven't narrowed myself down that much, but you know, oh, wow. Yeah. I, so I feel <laughs> yeah. that on like a spiritual level, like deeply. I mean, you have to, you have to be able to, I always say, if you're multifaceted, if you like various topics, there is always something about all those topics that like bring it all together for you. And it's always going to come down to that creativity aspect that you mm -hmm. have. And people might see all the different topics and not get the correlation, but because their brains are thinking differently than yours are. So your creative mind and your various experiences allow you to see how all of those various things connect. And that's what makes good research is when you can go and see two things that say in a in an excavation pit and they don't look related at all but because of all your various experience you might actually be able to find that they are related and no one else would have caught that because they didn't have the same desire to expand their knowledge like you did most definitely um so after you know you were talking about applying to or looking into different programs what ended up uh convincing you to choose university of liverpool so my undergrad, I focused on Central and South American graffiti, and I compared it to modern graffiti that was done by the Navajo Nation in Flagstaff to see how they were using the graffiti to reoccupy spaces that were uh, native to their history. And I, I decided to take that and look at uh, Egyptian graffiti and how graffiti is also used in the ancient Egyptian world to reoccupy spaces and to reclaim space. And I told my professor, Dr. Jaime Alway, about it. And he suggested I look at University College London because that's where he got his PhD. So I messaged them, I sent them my research. They said, graffiti sounds great, um, try looking at Liverpool. So I was like, okay, I went to Liverpool and asked them. They said, we'd love to have you, but we actually have like, there's a woman called um, Dr. Frude, Elizabeth Frude. She's at Oxford. She does graffiti in ancient Egypt, message her. So then here I am going now to <laughs> Oxford. Oxford, I did get an interview for, and it was great, but unfortunately, um, Dr. Food had some medical issues and she wasn't able to accept students, at least that's what I was told. Um, but Liverpool did say, regardless of how Oxford goes, just let us know. And then obviously, hopefully it doesn't go bad, but if it does, then we can proceed further. So I woke up one day, I got my rejection letter from Oxford, devastated at least I can still say I have a letter from Oxford so haha um <laughs> positives yeah but I I was sad um and I went okay I'll message Liverpool I'll let them know and I went to go message Liverpool the next day and they had already sent me an acceptance letter without an interview they were just like loved to have you and then of course I cried even more and I told my mom I was yeah. like I, I mean I already knew I was gonna go to England because those are the only places I applied but now it's official I'm going and I remember I was just about to go to Egypt to excavate so I was more like I'm gonna go to England but first I'm gonna go to Egypt I'll see you later mom and then I just like got on a plane and left and I came back and packed then went to England but yeah it was um, it's something that I think I always say wherever you end up is where you're meant to be because as much as I would have loved to go to Oxford I ended up meeting my husband in Liverpool he was my next door neighbor oh, and then I ended up meeting the people that I work with Menem now like she was one of my best friends in the program she actually was the matron of honor at my wedding her husband officiated our wedding so it was meant to be yeah I I truly believe that and that's why like I've been rejected from my dream schools for undergrad whatever and I always try to tell people it hurts and I acknowledge your pain. I validate your pain, 
but I promise it happened for a reason. And it sounds so stupid, but it's like really, especially when we're talking about, um, you know, graduate programs, things can happen like someone's health that are completely out of your control and that have nothing to do with you as a scholar. But then also like, for example, like my dream undergrad school was William and Mary. Like they reviewed my application and they thought, we don't think that you're a right fit for a community. And, you know, I think they might've been right, you know? So it's like, it's painful, but it does happen to set you up for better opportunities. So I'm really glad that that's how it was for you. And that's so cute that like you met your friend group and like, oh my God, that's my dream for grad school. I'm like, just get me out of Santa Barbara. I want to get to Virginia right now. Honestly, it was so cute because I remember like meeting my husband thinking he was the cutest thing. He's from London, he's six foot four, definitely my type of person. And um, we, because we were neighbors, the way our, our dormitory was set up is we had a common hall with all of our rooms, like in that hallway. We all have our own private bathrooms. It was really sweet. And then we have a common kitchen. And because of how our rooms were set up, my bed frame uh, backed onto like his, the wall where his bed frame was. So I would like knock on the wall to see if he was awake. And if he was awake, we didn't hang out. But it was like sending little Morse code messages, basically, because, you know, of course we have to be nerds. But he's yeah. not an archaeologist or Egyptologist. He's actually in the sports business uh, industry. So he's he works for a sports betting company because, yeah, why not? I can't even be uh single-minded with my own partners they also have to be someone with various interests yeah I feel like that's that's fun though because it keeps you on your toes and I don't know if you're into sports but then maybe it'll keep you up to date with the sports world yeah not into sports but uh now I am (laughs) (laughs) now you have to be Uh, so there's so much to unpack from your the first of all the idea that you're comparing graffitis to you know culturally so the graffiti that you were looking at in um was it in Belize because it was Maya. yeah so uh, okay. Belize and Guatemala so at the site of Tikal okay that we're talking the like 2000s Navajo tribe we're talking 1990 you know because I know it's modern graffiti but like what kind of time period are we talking about yeah so with the Navajo graffiti uh, so like the Belizean graffiti and the Guatemalan graffiti is actually made during the time when the Maya were reoccupying sites so I think like conquistador times when okay. people were coming back into sites not knowing how to speak the Mayan language. So they're actually trying to replicate what they're seeing, not knowing what it's saying. So sometimes you get some sentences that would be the equivalent of us saying, the cow pizza book. And you're like, yes, the cow did pizza book. I understand. But clearly it's just for like the the aesthetic purpose of it to reclaim the space, to feel belonging on it. Mm -hmm. And then the Navajo graffiti I was looking at was actually modern day graffiti done by the locals they were coming in and doing graffiti of like you know missing women in the indigenous community uh, why aren't we taking that seriously obviously agricultural things because the university that I went to northern Arizona University has had some history of like where they're getting their waters from a sacred mountain which now also has a ski resort on it so it was like doing graffiti trying to show like the sacred lands and resources that we're losing and so all that graffiti I I was looking at I fell in love with immediately and just that was actually what started it all I said I love how they're reclaiming this space and they have something to say about it I want to see if we've done that in the past and what I saw in Belize was yeah they were reclaiming these spaces because the conquistadors are coming in they have foreigners now moving them off lands they want to reclaim their ancestral spaces Mm -hmm. they want to feel belonging still on a space where they're feeling threatened now and even like with climate change and things like that happening in that region it was just a way for them to kind of feel like 
I'm losing everything. I need a rebirth. I need to find Mm -hmm. my connection again. And then, yeah, it transfers into Egypt, trying to find your belonging on uh, very restricted spaces, on temple spaces, on spaces that you might not have access to, but you still want purpose in. So it was like graffiti that was done on the outside of these temples for the the locals to kind of interact with. But then it delved into some political graffiti, which is what I hope my PhD goes into, which is kind of cool. That is cool, especially just given like all the developments in Egypt um, continuously politically, like it's never gonna, it's always gonna be in like ever-changing situation. It's not like you have to worry about, you know, (laughs) you're like, I have time for this. It's gonna keep evolving. Um, so it, your, the master's research, and I'm sure you looked at other sites, but I know specifically you looked at Lux, uh, the, the temple of Luxor, um, tell me about what kind of materials they were using to create graffiti on the temples. Is it spray paint? Cause you know, that's, I feel like the most common thing here, but I can imagine maybe not the most common thing in other places. Yeah, you would have, there's different types of graffiti that is done. Um, you have some that add to spaces and some that take away from spaces. Like that's the easiest way to kind of say it. So the ones that add to spaces are like paints. So you know how the ancient Egyptians would paint their temples? Well, they would probably, you know, they would do some painting as well for graffiti. But then some of the more formal graffiti, which is done by priests, but it's not sanctioned by the temple. That's, that's taking away from the landscape. That's actually carved into the stone. Um, Obviously, it's done very artistically because the priests at the time were the literate ones. They had obviously the training to not only read and write, but also to uh, design and like draw. So you see that type of graffiti on the temples. So it is something where I think a lot of us are used to spray paint and they would have paint. um, But a lot of the times if it was more in temple areas, then they were actually making it much more permanent and also have evidence to show that once the graffiti was made, it actually became important to them. And there looks like to be um, post holes uh, that would surround a graffiti on a wall. And then that would have had wooden spokes in it and almost like a canopy to protect it from the weather. I was going to say like a little viewing area. That's really interesting. Um, And when we're talking about the graffiti, is it mostly shapes, words, um, animate objects? What kind of depictions? Yeah, so we have um, a lot of it. There's both written inscription and images, mostly of gods. Um, Some of the ones, my favorite one is of a god, Amun Min Kamutef. And it's the funniest thing because this god has a, a phallic image on him. And he is, it's a fertility symbol, obviously, it has an inscription with it, but the inscription was done at a later date than the graffiti. So the graffito, so the graffito has the image of the god, and then the inscription written later talks about someone coming in and doing a restoration project on that graffito. But when you do an analysis of the graffito, you can actually see that they just enlarged the phallic image. They just re chiseled uh, it out, basically, made it slightly bigger, and then said, I'm amazing. I have conserved this god. You're welcome, more or less. <laughs> I actually think I might have it on my laptop. Let me see. Yeah, wait, wait, I have it. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> so I won't read the ancient Egyptian one, I'll read the translation. It's like restoration of monuments, which the high priest of Anun Ra, king of the gods, Menkepera, true of voice, the son of King Penujem, made in the dominion of his father, Amenopet. And it's just like, yeah, you're really cool. But it's a fancy way of saying, I did that. You're mm-hmm. welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I enlarged your manhood. <laughs> just, yeah. just for you. 
That's so funny. I went to, um, yesterday we have the Chumash painted caves here in Santa Barbara, which is like a little rock art site. And, um, one figure that everyone was asking about, and there was like a little like person figure. Oh, and I was going to say it, um, this is what professor Kinkella believes that it's pre-contact, but probably not by much. So it's not like thousands and thousands of years old, but it is older rock art um it's this little like he has his little hands out he's almost like doing jazz hands and it's a little head and then he has a big triangle on his head and everyone was asking Kinkala, you know what do you think this is what do you think this is and he said I think that it's one of the gods um that's literally just like I am here I am strong I because it was like one of the bigger more like shapely forms a lot of the other ones were like um like circular um or almost like almost look like like prokaryotes to me you know like little bacteria when they're like kind of a long like an elongated oval and then there's this little guy who's just doing his thing but I love that there is a lot of interpretation with things like that but it's interesting in this case of art that there are descriptions that go along with the images because that brings a whole other level and then like you were saying well a description might have been done after the image so what is it telling us I just find it so fascinating art art in general is such a cool thing to interpret yeah I honestly I love interpreting art in general and then graffiti is just a whole other level because we always have this idea that graffiti is bad but in the past we see a lot of graffiti done and it doesn't seem to have as much of a negative connotation now of course there are still inappropriate graffiti images let's say uh, in Egypt that are for nefarious means and yeah those are obviously not as nice but the stuff that I'm studying is um, a lot a lot of what I do I was also looking at cognitive studies, like modern cognitive studies, to understand why the brain has this need and desire to transpose themselves on landscapes. And it's using like psychology and things like that into the past to you know, like a post-processual, if you will, research to kind of cool. understand more of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing and why we're still doing what we're doing. Yeah. I like that. Maybe you'll be able to incorporate some of that into your PhD because I feel like that's a really fascinating approach. Yeah, I would honestly love it. So like the graffiti I want to do for my PhD is um, the priest at the time I'm looking at, which is like the New Kingdom, Third Intermediate Period. It's a time when the pharaohs were losing power and the priests were actually gaining more control. So the graffiti is of priests mimicking images of the pharaohs inside the temple complex. So you'll have a king, for instance, with all of his children lined up behind him. So the priest is like, well, I need to show that I'm in power now. So he'll make an image of himself on the wall with all his children behind him with mimicking inscription. And it's really cool to see that they're like, oh no, I'm also as cool. Let me just copy you. Um, it's nothing has changed. Honestly, nothing has changed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's modern. It's, uh, it's the, what, it's the historical propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> I kept wanting to say modern, but historical propaganda. I mean, it's so interesting. So yeah, honestly, it, it blows my mind uh, every time. So that's hopefully, fingers crossed, that will be a PhD in maybe five years time. I'm waiting for my UK citizenship so that a PhD is more affordable. Mm -hmm. So until then, I'm going to be doing all my other side projects. Um, and I, I don't have to put this in the episode, but this is like genuine curiosity. When you married your husband, you didn't, don't automatically get citizenship? No, so just that's like it in works the US, in America, right? No, so in the US, you also don't automatically get citizenship. You'll get what's called a green card, kind of. 
Um, so I'm on a spousal visa. I have to apply for that spousal visa every two and a half years until I can get a permanent residence visa, which is like a green card. Okay. Now, instead of the green card, I'm just going to go for the, the citizenship instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like in the States, you have to take a test and everything. So I think the States is honestly a little more intense. Mm-hmm. I remember I had a professor who got married and I think she had to do interviews with somebody either every year or every so many years to prove that her relationship was still genuine. And then eventually, I think after 10 years, she was able to get citizenship. So it's, it's a, it, yeah, it's intense process. So no, I'm not automatically a UK citizen. I do yeah. wish that was how easy it was. Yeah, but. that's so funny. I feel like the media portrays it as people like, you know, people just like randomly getting married to like get citizenship. Well, learn something yeah. new every day. I always yeah. appreciate it. And it's so expensive. I mean, my one spouse abuse alone is a couple grand and I've had to apply for like also visiting visas to get married or like reasons to get married and thanks pandemic I've now spent thousands of dollars I haven't gotten back because you keep canceling my visa because things shut down but hey we're still here we we got married (laughs) yes and you're 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 surviving and thriving exactly that's good I think it's really interesting that you've picked up the accent yeah a lot of people have mentioned it and everyone in the UK can pinpoint I'm American and everyone in the U.S. always goes oh where are you from uh and then I'm like oh from Arizona but I yeah. live in London and they're like oh my gosh why do you why did you live in Arizona are your parents from London and I was like my dad's Mexican-American and my mom is Eastern European and yeah. French-Canadian like no no <laughs> but I, it's just like I think it's because I I had to study so many different languages yeah. for university so like the French the German uh Spanish ancient Egyptian that yeah. my voice has now just kind of been here and even with yeah. opera like opera you have to do a lot of natural like this kind of vowel sound I guess sure. so even with my background of that my husband's yeah. like I like your voice now it's cute and I was like yeah because it's not a full like like English accent it's more just like the certain pronunciation of words but I'm actually like that in the worst way when I'm around British people something in my brain just like repeats words the way they say it and then people are like why are you acting like you have a British accent I'm like I promise you I'm just pronouncing certain words like that way it's not like some intentional like copying like my brain just hears it and then wants to repeat it like a parrot oh 100% my mom was like that at our wedding the more she drank the more I think she thought she sounded British yeah <laughs> Oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> I'm just like actually imagining that. Like, that would be she was mean. so cute too. She's like, she's like a hundred pounds wet. So she's like a little lady yeah. going around very uh she used to be a cheerleader in the States, so she has that very like bubbly cheerleading American yeah. accent. And then the more wine she had, the more she thought she sounded British, and the more people thought she was adorable. I yeah. love that. Oh, and you were mentioning earlier that you speak many languages, which is really impressive. And which ones were learned in college versus, because I know you had Spanish growing up. And then I think I saw that German you took in. I took French in high school um, because my grandmother's French Canadian. So I thought, oh, I'll give that a go. Mm -hmm. Um, So once in university, I minored in Arabic. So I went to work in Egypt. And then I also took German because a lot of texts in um, Egyptology are in German and French. So I was like, I need some German. Colonization the Arabic, Yeah, exactly. The Arabic there was really funny because apparently I learned like modern standard Arabic, which would be the equivalent of like the the British accents that you hear on TV, um, like BBC kind of British, Mm -hmm. where everyone else thinks that just sounds really fancy, even in England. 
So when I went to Egypt and I was saying things like one word that apparently cracked everyone else was when I said Jamila, which is like beautiful, because they don't do the je, they do a ge. So they'd be like, no, it's Gamila. And I'm like, no, Jamila. They're like, oh, little Shakespeare. And I was like, <laughs> no, I'm not that fancy. It's just how I learned it. But apparently uh, my, um, my Arabic is bougie, according to Egyptians. That's interesting. I feel like I should know this, but language classification wise, are Arabic and Egyptian in a similar like usage of like, for example, like, is it a lot, you know, the, how they're like Latin and like Germanic based languages. I know I'm, I'm speaking out of my ass. I don't know enough about languages to be trying to compare, but are they a kind of similar language? So like, like Arabic and modern Egyptian was that yeah. the question? Yeah. So they're, they both are just like a dialect more or less. So it's almost like okay. so they speak Arabic in Egypt. It's just their dialect of, of, Arabic so it's almost like a difference between a Californian accent and how they would say certain words versus the New York accent and how they would say certain words mm-hmm. obviously it's still English it's just some dialect differences and some even some like verbal choices or okay. some some words like that so that is basically the same so they do know what I'm saying yeah they just think I sound like I am trying to toot my own horn 24 7 I love that. Well, you got to show them your wedding pictures and then they're going to be like, yes, this girl is bougie. Yeah. I mean, I was offered a lot of, uh, what was it? I was offered 125 camels as a joke, but 125 camels from one of my workmen to marry me. And then I was like, haha, that's really cute. Thank you. But no, I'm taken. And then he was like, okay, I'll get more camels. And then I looked at my supervisor and he goes, I know he's joking, but also he's not joking. So if you really do want these camels, we can make this happen. Uh, So I think if I showed them my wedding photos, they'd be like, dang it, we needed more camels. (laughs) We needed camels and horses and all everything we could. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Um, Oh, it's going to come back to me. Oh, I was going to ask you what your favorite thing about Egypt is. I'm assuming you've been multiple times now. Just what do, what do you love that's non-archaeology? I think, I mean, I love Egyptian food. I just love Arabian food in general. So the food, the music, especially like the street music, um, it is played a little bit in Moon Knight, like during the credit scenes and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's actually like Egyptian street music, which you if you listen to it in Egypt people are like oh oh hardcore or if you listen to it on Moon Knight you're like oh yeah I, I feel like I'm gonna gonna go like meet some gods like it sounds really cool but um, I love the music I love just the vibrant colors and patterns and every time I go I'm just I want to buy 50 million things like I have so many bedazzled turbans now to hide my hair when I go out in public it's not a requirement but I'm like I just really want to have my hair slicked back and I want all the gems so I think that's just been a lot of fun. And everyone is honestly genuinely very nice. Uh, I think a lot of people think, oh, Egypt is like, obviously Arabic people sound rude and mean. And, oh, they're always angry and you're a tourist. They're not going to like you. And I'm like, everywhere is like that. If you go to New York and you're a tourist, they're also air quote mean and rude. So I honestly think they're the sweetest people. They've had a lot of women um, when I was working there be like, oh, do you want to come over? I'll teach you how to make make, like all this food. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And then the Arabian men are just like, oh, do you want to come over? We'll have like tea. We can talk like history. And it's good to see that the community is very involved and welcoming versus what might be portrayed on media. Mm -hmm. Um, And I bet you get some good tea there. 
so much tea i think i became my blood was tea at one point honestly because yeah. where our excavation site was was in a small community so the workmen actually lived in the community and then their wives would come over or their daughters which was even more cute they would like bring little tea uh, with us like to them on um, little golden platters so they would come and obviously offer us tea and that was constant so at one point I was like yes I have become tea if you yeah. just get me wet I <laughs> I will bleed tea <laughs> yes oh that's how I don't drink coffee though so I'm definitely like I that would be like my dream I feel like especially like, great quality tea oh my god it's amazing everywhere I've ever gone in the Middle East great tea like even in Jordan when I was in Petra oh I could have had tea forever there my favorite dish that I was introduced to by Trader Joe's, I have not been to the Middle East, um, I wish, but it's Valella and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but it's like a chickpea salad that has almost like when I try to explain it to people, like kind of a similar pico de gallo kind of essence in the way that the tomatoes and there's like some kind of like tang of juice, but it's different. It's so good. I get that yeah. by the tub at Trader Joe's. I'm now hungry. Thank you so oh. much. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, um, so the one of the fun things that you do, we're going to completely switch subjects from, from Egypt, is you work for, let me find the name of the company so I can say it properly. Um, you're an event host for Pause in the Works, and it is a puppy therapy, and I'll I'll disclaim it's an accredited puppy therapy um, session. So tell me about how did you first, how did you get interested in that? And then what are your responsibilities? It's it's an honestly, it's an incredible company. Yeah, pause and work with the first and only licensed and accredited puppy therapy company in the entire UK. There we go. There's the speech. Um, but it actually, it was such a coincidence that I ended up there. My husband has many friends as one social butterfly does but he had some school friends and one of those school friends is the founder like one of the founders of that company and they were looking for more people to travel to different um, companies in London to obviously bring puppies but also <laughs> to talk about like puppy facts and health and ethical breeding things things like that so I got in contact with them and they honestly, I guess they adored me because they haven't, they hired me and they haven't fired me. So here we are. Um, but it's an incredible opportunity. What we do uh, is we're the in-between between breeder partners and forever homes. So these puppies are between five weeks and eight weeks. Sometimes we even work with them when they're older. But our main goal is to get these puppies socialized because experts say that puppies need to meet 90 different people in the first 90 days of their life to be truly socialized. Hmm. And the more they're socialized, the better their temperament is when they go to the forever home, which means they're less likely to be rehomed. Mm -hmm. And with us, then they can meet over 400 different people in a week, which is about the average time we work with our puppies. We have like the unofficial graduation ceremony it tends to be like on a Thursday or a Friday. Um, we had, I think this on Friday was our last day working with a litter of pugs. And I did say, I was like, they just graduated. Everyone did a little round of applause and they went off back to see mom. But yeah, the puppies are still living with their mom. 
um, they are only separated permanently from mom when they do go to their forever home. So it's nice to get mom used to the puppies being away and the puppies get to get used to being away from mom. So that transition is made much easier for them. We've also had feedback from vets saying that paws and work pups are some of the best to have because the pups come in being like, it's fine, touch my paws, touch my ears, touch my yeah. belly, like everyone else has, so could you. And then they get that first vaccine and they're like, oh, that was a one-off thing, that's fine. Anyways, you can scratch my butt, it's fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's something that obviously has nothing to do with archaeology but I still get to do um, what I love which is teaching people about things that are important mm -hmm. and the health and safety of puppies and the ethical breeding practices of puppies is paramount to the longevity and the happiness and the healthiness of dogs like that is what we're trying to do especially in a city like London where people have they want dogs but they don't have time to have dogs so we get to educate them on what's best to do in that instance and and where to look and what to really think about when you are bringing a dog into your home forever so if anyone's ever interested listening to this if you go onto the pause and work website we even have blogs that you can use to look at like what do you want to find when you're looking for a puppy to adopt or to purchase what are like good signs of health what are good signs of being ethical what kind of um things you need to look for with training, like mm -hmm. so many resources. We do all of the hard work for you mm -hmm. so that you can have those resources for free to hopefully help you and your dog live the best lives possible. We also do mental health training, which is really cool too. So after we leave the company, if your company wants mental health training, we do offer that as well. Great. It's just something people don't think of, but yeah, we're all like mental health trained. So we can sit and, and help listen to everything you want to say, mm -hmm. give you puppy facts, and then you just get to relax with puppies at your work. That's so, that's so special. I don't know how you don't take home all the puppies. I would have an issue. I would want to keep them all. Um, I, I should not big enough. Huh? Your apartment, <laughs> so yeah. My pockets are just not big enough. Yeah. Yes. I think also for me, like I already have a dog. Um, the listeners definitely know that I talk about her all the time, but like they're expensive. And for me, that's what keeps me from getting another dog. Because honestly, I tell everyone if I ever find a dog on the street, like and it doesn't have a microchip, like I'm keeping it. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to bring it to the shelter. Daisy's just going to have to like learn to deal with it because I just have, like, there's such a soft spot in my heart. And like, if I were to like save a dog, I could never be like, okay, and here you go to someone else who I don't know is how going to how to treat you, you know? Oh gosh, dogs are just, I mean, all animals, but dogs in particular are just such little blessings to this world. Dogs are amazing. And I like, I like how you mentioned, obviously, like the cost of them can be high. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is brought up in our sessions. People do have concerns about, well, they're very costly. We did see that a lot of our breeder partners on our network didn't raise prices during COVID because they didn't want, they want to make sure that the right families could still afford mm -hmm. their, their forever puppy, which was really sweet. But then also people need to consider that all those costs that go into purchasing a dog are going for the medical care of the mom who gave birth to these puppies yeah. and for also the medical care of these puppies they're probably going to get their first vaccines before they go home to you sometimes they're even going to get their second vaccine so all of that money you're spending on a pup is just ensuring that they're the healthiest they can be so of course there's a difference between they're like you know expensive but reasonable and that's just ridiculous 
So it's just like kind of knowing that boundary. Well, and even like for Daisy, the expenses that I mean are like her, her monthly flea and tick meds, you know, her food, like her teeth cleaning. Cause she has dental disease. She, so my dog was a rescue, um, off of the streets, which is insane. When you see her, you'd think that she's like this, like purebred, like, no, she's a little, like <laughs> a little mutt from the streets. But the other thing is that I've, so I, um, I'm going to start my master's program soon and I'm kind of gearing up for the move. And I've had several people that like know me well, including my grandmother and one of my best friends, deadpan, ask me, are you taking Daisy? And I just look at them and I'm like, of course, what, what do you think I'm going to do with her? And it just makes me so sad that so many people have genuinely felt the need to ask me that because that means I'm sure they, they probably know someone or they've heard of people just returning the dog to the shelter. And it just like broke my heart. I was like, um, Daisy's stuck with me until she dies. Like she's not going anywhere. Don't worry, people. Exactly. That's they're yours for life. And yes. you are theirs. Yes. I just thought it was so crazy. I was like, of course she's coming with me to Virginia. What do you mean? I would die if someone took her from me. Like never. It's almost like people going, are you sure you want to be an archaeologist? Are you sure? I mean, oh, anthropology. Oh, what? And I'm just like, shut up. I could be an archaeo gamer one day. It's great. I want to ask you before, before we get fully sidetracked, um, one of my favorite things to talk with people about is, you know, we talked about this part of your life that's outside of archaeology, but the other things that kind of like keep you going and are your hobbies. I know you have a scuba certification. Maybe that's part of it. Also, like maybe um, you have all these beautiful books behind you, like reading, like what are your hobbies? What are your go-to things that keep you fueled as a person outside of academics? I think uh, there's a lot, obviously. I'll, I'll do like my main ones. Traveling and scuba diving, 100%. They keep me feeling alive. Like the adrenaline rush of that is really exciting and invigorating. So I love to travel. I went to Jordan with one of my colleagues, Josephine Percival, and her and I did Petra. We traveled all around at a conference. And that was a lot of fun, especially because she's like me, where I told her, if you wear a nice dress in Petra, I'll take photos. And then her and I could still nerd out and talk about the history, but also look pretty and have all the photographic evidence for it. So like that stuff is a lot of fun. When I got my scuba certification, I did it in Mexico. So I got to swim with sea lions and sharks, which was incredible. Would never give that up. Um, When I was working in Belize, I did spelunking and like cave research. So I love spelunking. I've also done it in Arizona. So it's like that thrill seeking stuff, I think literally keeps me alive. Um, but like more sedentary London life, uh, I do like to read. I collect a lot of hardcover books mm. and I do read all of them. So everything on my shelf I have read. People think it's just there to look pretty. And no, no, nay, nay. I also read for fun. Mm-hmm. I also listen to podcasts when I go to the gym. Like I'm finishing the Witcher series right now. And everyone thinks it's the weirdest thing that I'm listening to the Witcher. But I'm like, hey, no, it's motivation. It sounds cool. I'm not thinking about how long the song is. Because yeah. usually I'm like, if it's a song, I know I have three minutes and I can't physically do anything. So I'm just thinking about the time where I don't know how long a chapter is. I don't know how long a section in a chapter is. Yes. It keeps me going. So audiobooks are great. Mm-hmm. And then video gaming, 100%. My husband and I are avid video gamers. I'm like wearing my Assassin's Creed Origins promotional shirts. Um, yeah, uh, it's just, I even have my Apple at Eden from Assassin's Creed in the background. It's, it has, it glows. It's, it's, uh, I know no one can see this in the podcast, but like, so like a little Apple of Eden and then it has a, button somewhere where it will glow yeah you kind of can see it not really but it does glow 
so I like my video games. Uh, I like scary games. That also, they think the adrenaline rush. I think we're just realizing I'm an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like, think oh, they jump out of planes? I uh, haven't yet. That's on my bucket list. I've gone um, cliff jumping though. So that's been probably like the highest height I have jumped from. <laughs> Uh, yeah I think it's yeah I don't know <laughs> I love it it's just something I will never be able to relate to is adrenaline junk yeah I'm just so the opposite like <laughs> yeah I think a lot of people um especially in Egyptology a lot of people don't realize that Egyptology is mostly behind a desk a lot of Egyptologists are rarely archaeologists and if there are archaeologists they're mostly just translating texts where I'm the opposite I want to be on the on the ground in the field mm -hmm. doing everything and I remember talking to somebody and I was talking about when I was in Belize and I was spelunking um I was I had a little headlamp on I literally had to swim into a cave I had to go underwater and back up and then I had to hike up like a steep cliff face and then we're wandering around and my team basically said we're going to go over a ridge into the main gallery Mm -hmm. but if you would like there is a small tunnel that you'd be on your hands knees and stomachs for like you really had to army crawl you can go through there and you'll come up to the same gallery so what does everyone want to do and I was the only person who wanted to go through the tiny tunnel by myself in were. the dark of course yes. were. <laughs> exactly so I was like okay see you guys and so it's a straight line you cannot mess this up it's just one way there's no way to turn anyway so I did it I come out into this gallery it's pitch black my little headlamp can only do so much and mm -hmm. I was there for a while by myself mm -hmm. and after a certain point of being in a cave alone you start thinking did I make a wrong turn no I didn't turn but maybe this is the wrong gallery maybe it was the wrong tunnel even though I was shown the tunnel yeah. personally um, and then eventually my team like came over the range and they were in the gallery <laughs> but I'm like oh my god I thought I was just stuck in here forever and then of course everyone comes up and they're just like oh my gosh it's so cool you're not claustrophobic and I was like oh I had no idea if I was or not that was my trial <laughs> And they just went, why would you do that to yourself? I'm like, when else am I going to figure that out? I would figure it out. Might as well here. So I, I told that to my Egyptology friends and they just went, no, no, thank you. Here's a book. And I was like, pretty book, but no. And they're like, no, I literally came into this thinking I'd be so cool. And they did wow. not give a shit. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Aside from that, do you have any favorite memories from fieldwork? Because that sounds like a pretty like significant one, but I feel like we didn't talk much about your field work. So, and feel free if you want to take like a second to think about that. <laughs> There's so many different ones because they've been such different excavations. Mm -hmm. um, my first excavation in Peru was memorable because we found a naturally mummified woman. And very memorable. We, very memorable. But what was a little intense with that is when we got her back into the lab, we didn't realize her brain was still intact and it started to rot. And then we all got sick and someone had a dream that the, the woman was like coming after them. And we all had that running joke of it was the mummy's curse. So that was memorable for that reason. But she was extraordinary. Um, she even had an infant buried in a ceramic vessel next to her. So she could have died from childbirth. It could have also been that cavity. She had abscessed on her teeth. But like that experience alone was for our first excavation, very memorable. Yeah. Um, Belize was memorable because I excavated a temple on top of a pyramid and I ended up finding a preserved red painted floor, which in the jungle rarely ever happens. So that was extraordinary in and of itself. And that's when I started to get to head my own excavations. I got to actually like be a supervisor from, for some units. 
So that was cute. I was like, yay. Yeah. And then Egypt, my first time excavating there, I found a giant ceramic vessel upside down inside a wall. And to this day, we don't know why it was upside down, let alone inside a wall. Nothing was inside of it. I could have fit inside of it. But it's it's the strangest thing. I remember my my supervisors, I, I was a supervisor for the unit and then there was supervisor for the entire site. And they just came over and they were like, I mean, I don't know. So we'll just get it out of the ground. Like there's nothing else we can do here. And then and it was like relative it out. Packed. Yeah, it was. Like the only thing that was like really missing from it was like some of the bottom of it, which was on the top. And like we got it out and we're all like expecting something really cool to be in there. And it was just wall nothing <laughs> it'd be fun to do some like um tests on the inside to see like what potentially could have been in there or it was just permanently empty and someone didn't like yeah. it and put it in a wall <laughs> they were like you brought home another ceramic oh, just put it in the wall I don't want to see it anymore <laughs> I honestly think sometimes about like what archaeologists of the future will like find of our remains but you know what our human species has to last longer than 2040 for that to happen and currently that's not looking too good so no if we do last that long and someone excavates like disney world i'll love them to think that we worshiped a mouse that's gonna be fun oh my gosh that's such a good point (laughs) and then obviously we have like little effigies of all of the the little animals but then we also have bigger costumes of the animals so it was like were people doing ritual dances and things with like there was a a processional inside there and everyone was in costume and then you sold figurines like what I'm I'm at a loss for words because if you look at it from an anthropological perspective that's exactly what you would think and I've never thought of that wow yeah well that's Mm. interesting (laughs) it gives you a whole new perspective on what we interpret about indigenous people's myths and just reminds us why we should focus on indigenous people's perspectives one of my favorite things exactly um, my mom and I just went to the Santa Barbara Art Museum and they have um, some East Asian collections and we were seeing how prevalent you know the dragon is in both Japanese and Chinese art and I was like I wonder if dragons ever existed like wouldn't that be so cool and then we were talking about the other thing that there's kind of like uh some theory on is that potentially indigenous people saw dinosaur remains or um you know large terrestrial mammals that were just bones you know that were decaying whatever and they were like oh my gosh you know this is that you know we're gonna create 100% and it's so cool I just love to think about stuff like that from a different perspective rather than just looking at the um like oh they made this up you know thinking about where the origins of a myth could have come from yeah I think a lot of us there's always that running joke in archaeology and anthropology where if you don't have an answer it's just ritual like everything is ritual until proven otherwise um but it's like you made a comment about they might have seen fossils in the ground and thought oh these are dragons we do have evidence like even when I was excavating in Peru where there were fossilized whale bones that were in these homes because they thought they were sacred objects. They didn't know what they were. They didn't know the animal. They thought it was just this really cool thing. And I'm like, yeah, easily you could find fossils and just make up our, I mean, our imaginations are incredible. So we can add our own interpretations, even in the past to fossils we find and come up with some very interesting stories. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And it's, people ask me why, you know, I love anthropology so much. And I'm like, it's stuff like that. There's a never ending um, wealth of information to be learned. 
And I love that every time I go to a museum, I learn something new. And every time I, you know, listen to a talk or meet a new guest, like I'm always just fascinated by it. For example, today I learned that there was ancient graffiti in Egypt and it's just so cool. And thank you so much for telling me about it. <laughs> You're welcome. There's so many, I can send you more as well. I'll send yes. you some on like Instagram or something, but yeah. it's very cool to see. And honestly if you just look up ancient graffiti in general it's great to know that we as a species just love to create and be always interpreting what's around us and always reclaiming what is something that we can't have originally like it's just it's so much fun to see how we manipulate transform and interpret yeah. landscape I would definitely love to post some of the pictures from Luxor when we post your episode so people can see what we're talking about yeah 100% I will find all the stuff on my hard drive Awesome. And then I just like to end the podcast with kind of a general um, opportunity for you to elaborate on anything that we maybe skimmed over, add anything that we didn't discuss and or ask a question for me, just kind of a last opportunity to get out anything that we didn't ca- get to. Oh, let's see. Let's see. I guess maybe I'll ask a question. I mean, honestly, I'm an Egyptologist, so I am here with a wealth of information that I'll probably forget when you ask a question. But is there anything about ancient Egypt that you've always been like curious about or want more information on? Yes. Let me think. There's always Um, too many questions. I actually have a great one, especially with the amount that we were talking about, like dogs. Um, is there any, well, you might not know because you're not like bio arc or zoo arc. I might know. Okay. Um, is there evidence of like pet, like pets um, in the either like temples with like pharaohs or just like, I don't know too much about how ancient Egyptians just buried their non like super important people dead. Um, but I, one of my favorite like cases from Pleistocene Europe is like a woman buried with a fox. <laughs> Yeah, we've had, so Egyptians were buried with animals, um, not necessarily pets. They would be, especially like cats were a very popular thing to be buried with. And at one point the temples were actually breeding cats so that they could be sacrificed and put into tombs. And the cats would like live the lavish life and then be sacrificed, turned into mummies. And we do have records showing that at one point the cats weren't reproducing fast enough so sometimes the mummies would, the wrapping would look like a cat, but on the inside, it would just mix as a different bones and they were just given as offerings. Yeah, we like to, uh, we like to fake a good mummy in ancient yeah. Egypt. There, <laughs> there was a documentary, I think on Disney Plus, of someone who claims they have found a dog that was the pet that was buried with two individuals. And there's an inscription on the tomb where it looks like it could be the dog's name because it's actually the the tomb owner sitting on a chair the dog is laying underneath the chair and then his name is like placed above him above the dog but further evidence suggests that it might not actually be the dog's name but instead the spelling of like an oil offering instead i actually have a post on menem archaeology about it and a lot of the archaeologists were saying oh no that's the dog's name and then if you do look it's also the name of an offering oil so it could just be an offering and the dog could be another offering instead of a pet Um, but further evidence needs to like come out about it in order to definitively say if it's a pet or an offering the only reason people think it might be a pet is because the dog is actually mummified and buried in between the two tomb owners the two individuals where usually they're buried separately off into the offering 
area offering section. So it could be possible that Egyptians did have pets. It's just like a rare occurrence of them being mummified with their owners. That's so cool. I love that because like I said, I call Daisy my creature because, and I know I sound crazy, whatever. Somehow, somewhere there's fox in her DNA and I don't know how, but the way this dog acts is like a fox. And so I love just thinking about how people really did have quote unquote pets that were wild animals or somewhat domesticated and how cool that is to think about how how long of a connection humans have with animals yeah i think especially ancient egyptians i mean their gods alone were anthropomorphic they Mm -hmm. were had animal heads and there are so many animals that are buried in tombs there was a crocodile that was mummified with its little babies on its back as well. Like it's in the British Museum in the archives right now, but you can see all the little tiny crocodile babies on this like nine foot long crocodile. It is so cool. I'll have to see if my one of my friends have a photo of it to send to you, but it's it's intense to see how much the Egyptians loved a good animal mummy. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I was on TikTok the other day and it was a picture, it was like a video of this girl in a bathtub with these quote, lizards and she's holding them and they're swimming in the bathtub and she's like how these lizards get so big why can they swim and she's like holding them and petting them and I'm like those are alligator babies or crocodile babies or whatever and you know how on TikTok people do stuff like that for like clickbait to like make you think that they don't know so I'm hoping I'm desperately hoping that this girl actually realizes that she had baby alligators swimming around her bathtub with her but like the caption was like what kind of lizards are these? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and they're like, those are, those are bitey, bitey, no, no lizards. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, TikTok is, I feel like is a good mix between absolutely crazy, like actual stuff that happens. And then the like clickbait people that just want views. So I don't know, but. TikTok's another creature. I, I am now starting TikTok for Menem archaeology and I have like one video out. I'll have another video out this coming Friday, but it's just. Yeah, trying to learn the algorithm yes. and seeing what I'm going to put out. But basically, I'm just doing it now for my own interests because I can't guarantee an algorithm's going to do anything. That reminds me, the algorithm on Instagram, what the name? <laughs> I have no I'm, idea. I posted a reel yesterday. The least amount of effort I've ever put into a reel, a 20 second little like 10 clips of me driving to the, the painted caves, less than 24 hours, it already has 4,000 views. Oh my, my Catalina Island trip, which is like some of the most beautiful scenery ever has 600 views and it's been up for two weeks. And I don't care about the views. Like I just, I'm producing the content regardless. I just think it's insane how different, like what about it is making it so that the algorithm is promoting it. Like I don't understand. I have no idea. I, I keep trying to figure it out. And then I realize even if I had a PhD in algorithms, I would not understand. Yeah, so just I'll just stick to archaeology. Yeah, I'm like, I post what I post and then sometimes it does really well. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me to chat today. It was such a pleasure to meet you and thank you for sharing your expertise with all of our listeners. Thank you so much. Honestly, it has been absolutely amazing. Uh, of course, if people want more information on me, they can go to Instagram. I am Egyptian underscore Rose on Instagram. Menem Archaeology is linked on my Instagram, so don't worry, you can find everything there. But this has honestly been so much fun. I now finally get to be on the show that I listen to religiously. It's great. Wait, really? 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, well, I feel so special. Thank you that you listen. I honestly, like when my guests are like actual like listeners, I feel like it's such a special thing because for me, I want the podcast to be this community of cool people who all really, um, are doing cool things and like can all meet each other. I just, I love that. 